joint audits, a term that has many taxpayers shaking in their boots. Surprisingly, it's more bark than bite and can be helpful to both jurisdictions and multinationals. Welcome, everyone, to the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Deep Dive Transfer Pricing Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. On today's episode, we're going to examine everything you need to know about joint audits and why they're rising in prevalence. We're joined by Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Dr. Diana Creek-Levaya, author of Joint Audits, 10 Years of Experience, a Literature Review, a very informative article on the subject that was just published in the World Tax Journal. In speaking of academic credentials, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words throughout the course of today's show. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Canada is making moves, ones that multinationals will definitely want to watch. Finance Minister Christia Freeland recently presented Canada's 2021 budget, which includes measures around profit shifting, mandatory disclosure rules, interest deductibility, and digital taxation. The government plans to implement a digital services tax on January 2nd, 2022, despite the very glaring problem of multilateral disagreement on the matter. The budget will also take a deep dive into transfer pricing after the Cameco case decision and intends to distribute a consultation to address changing the transfer pricing rules. While Canada hasn't issued a budget in two years, thanks COVID, the country is coming back swinging with transfer pricing in its crosshairs. Clarity! It's essential for diamonds, water, and now transfer pricing. Poland is working on clarifying its definition of controlled transactions as part of its new guidance. The Ministry of Finance opened the matter to public consultation early last month and closed it at the end of April. So why the potential changeup? The 2019 definition is creating more headaches than one from comprehension to application to documentation. It defines controlled transaction as business activities based on actual behavior of the parties and the terms and conditions that were made as a result of that association. The proposal aims to expand the accepted activity between related parties to more than just traditional transactions. Think cooperation agreements, partnership agreements, and restructurings. News of Vietnam's transfer pricing crackdown is hotter than a bowl of pho. The Vietnamese government enacted Decree 132 in December 2020, solidifying the new regulatory environment just in time for the new year. As for what taxpayers can expect, it's a mixed bag. The decree reduces the arm's length range from the 25th to 75th percentile to the 35th to 75th percentile and provides clarification around submission of a country-by-country report. It also includes a broader definition of related party, along with a revised definition of commercial database, a move that will help companies facing an audit. The new changes are in effect for financial year 2020 and onward. Vietnam isn't wasting any time getting multinationals in shape while maintaining a friendly, competitive business environment.
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here now with Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song and Dr. Diana Creek-Levaya, author of Joint Audits, 10 Years of Experience, a Literature Review, which was published in the World Tax Journal. And I'm actually going to hand things over to Mimi to conduct this conversation. Mimi, you have the floor. Thank you so much, Diana. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. We're really excited to speak with you. How are things where you are today? Or where are you actually? Actually, I've been living in Germany for almost two years. Wow. Center of Europe. (laughs) The center of Europe. So how are things happening in terms of the COVID environment? Did you go to Germany to avoid the pandemic or was it just a, did it come to you, I should say? I guess it come to me. (laughs) The COVID-19 caught me here. So comparing to U.S., the number of Corona vaccination is not moving much here, so which made this situation more stressful. This new variety of corona, which was first discovered in Great Britain, is spreading rapidly here. For oh, this no. reason, more strict measures were adopted. For example, we had a radical lockdown over Easter. Gatherings in private, not more than five people from two houses is allowed curfew between 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. Only medical masks can be used and there of course are more complex travel restrictions in place which make this situation even more stressful. Actually I could make here a parallel with what happened in the international tax world due to globalization which put the international tax rules, tax administration, and tax policymakers into the stress and ultimately put in stress everybody, which leads to more uncertainty that, as you can see, it's really hard to get rid of. Wow, that's an interesting correlation and parallel, I should say, Diana. But nonetheless, I hope for the best, right? And we're looking at the hopefully a brighter future soon enough. Let's talk about something a little more bright. I mean, your career, you have an amazing background in, in economics. What drew you to economics? And I mean, you have your PhD in economics, right? And what continues to fascinate and challenge you today? My career, academic career, yeah, started in 2002 after receiving my master's degree. A year later, okay. I entered into a PhD program that took me four years to complete. So the topic of my PhD thesis was focused on practical aspects of solving the business problems by applying double taxation treaties. 
So, you see, during my PhD writing, I first encountered such concepts as fiscal planning, tax optimization, tax avoidance, evasion, on-time principle, and transfer pricing. Wow. So, so research and teaching always go hand in hand. So on the one hand, I started to teach international taxation, corporate finance management, and other things, working my way from an assistant lecturer to an associate professor. And on the other hand, I continued to publish, participated at diverse conferences, gave public lecture in diverse countries. So I received several scholarships which allowed me to conduct several postdoctoral projects at the best universities in the world and be guided by top tax law professor. One achievement triggered the next one, and this is always challenging, So, which continued to fascinate me even now. And no matter if it's about new topics, new people, new places, or new language. Right. You know, how did you get drawn into transfer pricing specifically? This Why double taxation, right? What was the appeal to that? Actually, nobody wrote about it before <laughs> in my country. So I wanted to be first. Yeah, so I guess I like to be a pioneer or something. Even with joint audit, I, I could consider myself a pioneer. So, yeah, that was the novelty in my country. <laughs> Oh, I love that. And, you know, based on your experience now, I mean, when you think about the multinationals operating on a global basis, what type of mistakes do you see them making all of the time? Well, I guess nobody makes the same mistake continuously. After a few times of, or you are learning something, or you are building a pattern, a habit, a trend, which cannot be considered a mistake anymore. Mm -hmm. So first, I would say that companies continue to underestimate the possibilities of automation and rely on some manual tasks. And I do not mean only tasks like extracting, sourcing, cleaning, or reconciling data for price calculation or margin adjustments, but also for monitoring of these adjustments, for example. So data automation eliminates errors, manual errors, which sure. represents the red flags for our audits and dramatically can improve the accuracy. So another mistake would be the underestimation of the importance of the risk management. Mm-hmm. So, and this should be not only be important for MI that are going into this compliance program, where risk management and being into control are the key elements. Other companies should perform their pre-risk assessment as well. And this is a continued work. So it's a huge mistake to consider that the work ends with the transfer price calculation. Right. So if I would be a tax inspector, for example, I would be looking for the potential adjustments, right? So I would be dig deeper into the process of calculation of the transfer price. In order to find that mistake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so all the intention behind the structures used by business. Yeah. Actually, this is what the tax inspectors are looking most, I would say. So, Yeah. That's interesting. I agree with you, you know, that M&Es are underestimating the power of automation and are still reliant 
especially tax departments, right, Diana? Especially tax departments because they continue to be reliant on manual processes, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But this is a great segue into our topic of discussion. Congratulations on your recent article in the World Tax Journal. It's titled Joint Audits, 10 Years of Experience, a Literature Review. And you have extensive experience studying and writing about these joint audits. And it's interesting in your article, you once again, you're a trailblazer, right, Diana? Because <laughs> there hasn't been enough literature, especially in Germany, about this particular topic. So what do you find interesting about joint audits? There is one question that bothers me for a while. Mm-hmm. How can we do more with less? And if they use their potential to the full extent, I believe that joint audits could be the answer to my question. And moreover, it is the topic that brings all my early interests and knowledge under the same hat which is namely the tax risk management, cross-border double taxation, and transfer pricing. So yeah, it's a great combination. <laughs> it sounds like it. And let's first start with the basic information, right? What exactly is a joint audit? And why is that different than what's considered a simultaneous tax audit? Can you give us a little bit of context here? Yeah. So when we are talking about joint audits, We are talking about two or more tax administration joining together, Mm -hmm. having common or complementary interests, proceeding in a pre-agreed and coordinated manner with high level of integration into the process and including the presence of officials from the other tax administration, where the tax administration jointly engage with the taxpayer enabling the taxpayer to share information with them jointly. And of course, the teams include competent authority representative for each tax administration for the exchange of information. When we're talking about simultaneous audits, then we are also talking about tax officers of two or more countries carrying out audits independently and simultaneously, but each in their own territory and also in a pre-agreed and coordinated manner. So the information that is obtained is exchanged with other revenue authority if it is relevant for the other party at the end of the inspection. So joint audits go beyond the scope of simultaneous audits. They are basically combining the elements of simultaneous audits with the preferably active presence of tax officials abroad. I see. And so is there a difference, I'm curious, between a simultaneous audit? Could a simultaneous audit result in two different opinions and perspectives versus a joint audit? They have to agree on the outcome? So they don't have to. Okay. And actually, the joint audit report carries only a coordinated summary with jointly determined facts. But the report does not substitute national tax assessment. So it's not necessary that they will come to an agreement. Got it. But the joint audit allows for better exchange of information and a more collaborative environment, right? Where they're both looking at things at the same time together. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
And how do these joint audits help to streamline the examination process for tax authority? So joint audits provide tax administration with a better understanding of not only the taxpayers' cross-border activities, but also the legal implication of those cross-border activities in the other jurisdictions. So the joint fact-finding process is the key here. So as a result, tax authorities are receiving a better quality of information, which is filtered through the best different audit approaches and dynamics. As a bonus, the tax authorities have the opportunities to understand the foreign legal framework, which ultimately, all together, represents 100% of success rate of common understanding between the tax administration and taxpayers. Well, of course, it is easy to communicate with some countries than with the other because of the huge difference in legislation mm-hmm. or culture. But joint fact-finding is very successful so far, at least in bilateral joint audit. Got it. And does this procedure, this joint audit procedure, does it benefit the taxpayer at all, do you think? I would mention here the Siemens example. So Siemens shared the experience with participating in two of these joint audits one of Netherlands and one of Austria, during the tax certainty conference organized by OECD in 2019, where they mentioned that double taxation was resolved or avoided with less time than experience or math. So an average time of 6 to 12 months versus 40 months with MAP is mentioned. Field auditors from both sides were able to discuss and align directly Mm-hmm. Tax and business function of Siemens were involved to a high degree. Issues addressed and outcomes were similar to results achieved in the MAP. However, much more transparency regarding the results for taxpayers. Although no formalized certainty existed, Siemens mentioned that the high degree of practical certainty for consecutive years was gained. So it sounds great to me. Yeah, no, it does sound great. I mean, if multinationals are benefiting from this because of the practical certainty, less time resolving issues related to potential double taxation, and then tax authorities are getting a better understanding of the differences in their legislative frameworks, and they're getting a better understanding of the actual intercompany transactions. It sounds like joint audits could be extremely beneficial on both sides. Now, What are the downsides of this joint audit framework, right, for both tax authorities as well as multinationals? Downsides of the joint audit happens, of course, then one of the parties doesn't want to cooperate. For example, the tax authorities not always share a common interest, for example, in order to prevent double taxation, a well-founded primary upward adjustment by one tax administration should be followed by a corresponding downward adjustment by the other one, or taxpayers less concerned about double taxation, for example, and more motivated by other reasons. Another downside to mention could be that there are strong beliefs that tax authorities would not always cooperate in the taxpayer's interest. Mm -hmm. So in some countries, for example, in Hungary, 
auditors would be remunerated based on success with regards to the additional taxes found. Sure. That is a big concern for somebody, some kind of professional. I do think that is a bit of a concern when the motivation of a tax auditor is to identify tax revenue, right? So, (laughs) And just to give a brief recap after that answer, joint audits are when two jurisdictions team up to examine cross-border transactions and business activity. While joint audits shorten examine time and reduce costs, a big concern when it comes to joint audits is that tax authorities would not always cooperate, which further complicates the process. Back to our conversation. But it sounds like there are situations during a joint audit when the countries do not want to cooperate. Now, that could clearly extend the timing of an audit, right? Like, is there a resolution path there? No, but statistically speaking, the duration of joint audits varies between 51 and 552 days, depending on the factual circumstances of each individual case. So the average statistic is around one year. But of course, two months and almost three years. So yeah, be quick. Got it. And simultaneous audits versus joint audits, right? A, just statistically speaking, there are historically probably more simultaneous audits, yes, than joint audits? Well, yes, and around, I guess, 40 years difference experience yep. also. Yep. If you were to explain, why are joint audits actually more advantageous, right? Or what circumstances would make it more advantageous? Maybe that's the better question. After examining cross-border issues, mm-hmm. MAP mutual agreement procedures are often necessary in order to resolve international tax conflicts. So MAP can be avoided under certain conditions for joint audits. So these regard, joint audits are more efficient and have a faster process. So that findings are exchanged not only after completion of the national audit, but continuously during the audit makes the joint audit more advantageous over the simultaneous one. Plus, they help to avoid misunderstandings and can deliver better quality of information due to the direct interaction with all parties. Got it. I think that that sounds like clearly a benefit to both sides, right? The avoidance of actually having to open up a separate mutual agreement procedure in the case of double taxation, but, you know, faster and more efficient and better information that can be used together under a joint audit versus a simultaneous audit, right? Right. And do you think in this particular year, I mean, when we talk about fiscal year 2020 and the year where the pandemic impacted multinationals on a global scale, do you think joint audits could be especially useful in this context? I don't think that there will be a special treatment or approach for 2020 year. Mm-hmm. I see the pandemic more as an accelerator of changes that were already taking place rather than an event that imposed new radical changes worldwide. So I do see that there will be need more cross-border collaboration in the future and respectively more need in joint audits. A good example here 
I can be the recently adopted sixth amendment of the direction directive of administrative cooperation shortly called DAC7. Mm -hmm. The new directive features numerous important amendments. Yeah. And I'm not going to enumerate all of them here, except the most notorious one concerning joint audit. So namely the new legal framework is built. So the DAC seven and their article twelve A provide first hard law definition of joint audit, which will be applicable from first January 24, and I guess that will be the year when the fiscal 2020 will be inspected. So very nice coincidence here. So that's one of the main changes here. Which countries now, I mean, is this just an enhancement to DAC 6, right? DAC 7, that there's this, there's this enhancement to that legislation. So are these mostly European countries that are now subscribing to this new legal framework for joint audits under yes. the Stack well, 7 yeah. Amendment? I would say directive is more mandatory yeah, to transpose in the national legislature for European Union countries. So yeah, it will affect EU members. Okay. And when we think about joint audits, what type of transfer pricing issues are actually considered to be what we might call fair game or what areas of transfer pricing are potentially explored under joint audits? The cases selected for joint audits are mostly related to transfer pricing issues. But I'm not sure about fair part when we are talking about any tax audits, but the main attention have got past contribution arrangements, profit attributions to permanent establishments, complex business restructuring, transactions involving intangible, mm-hmm. service and cost sharing agreements, or while well, these transactions involving low tax countries, of course. Of course. And when an m and should be mindful of the fact that joint audits will potentially increase, are there differences in the way that they should be preparing for a joint audit versus either a domestic audit or a simultaneous audit? Is there anything that they should be doing differently? Well, what could be different is the cost, which might be higher due to the global side. Mm -hmm. However, I think the bigger the company is, the less should be the difference between preparing for a joint audit comparing to others. So you see that the core transfer pricing audit process is broadly similar across the majority of jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. So the governing of information then putting forward technical position, rebuttal, debate, negotiation, and potential settlement, or movement through the court process or map procedure. Responses in tax audit start stating that understanding across the border group is not known or that key information requested is not available are no longer accepted by the tax authorities in many countries. So tax authorities' greater power to access taxpayers' information together with the increasing use of exchange of information in practice often make it difficult to retain this narrow country-only focus in transfer pricing situation, for example. Right. So, no, my question 
should be no difference. There shouldn't be a difference, but historically speaking, right? I am aware that some multinationals would have managed their transfer pricing risk on a unilateral country-specific basis, right? And that, I think, if they continue to do that, I believe they put themselves at at risk. Would you agree with that, Diana? Yeah, but for success in all situations, I would recommend just to keep this comprehensive, mm-hmm. contemporaneous documentation handy, mm-hmm. abstain from a certain position that are unjustified and firmly stand up for what you are believed to be right, and to remember this parallax effect that there might be situation when two parties, by looking at the same situation, are seeing different picture. And what is most important here that both might be right. So I would suggest if you prepare your documentation, then stick to it. Answer only when you are asked and answer only to that question. Do not let tax inspectors to twist the info you are giving against you. At the end, the tax inspectors are the ones who have to prove that your transfer pricing is not based on arm's principle. Simple rules. Yep. I think that's great advice because I feel like I am a broken record every time I tell taxpayers the same thing, which is comprehensive contemporaneous documentation, right? It is your best line of defense, if anything. And just a brief recap of that last answer. Just for everybody's edification, transfer pricing audits examine but are not limited to service agreements, cost-sharing agreements, business restructuring, entities and tax havens, aggressive tax planning schemes, and cost allocation agreements. Multinationals can stay on the offensive by preparing contemporaneous, robust documentation in case they undergo a joint audit. Let's even take a moment for our first CPE code word, and that code word is is service, as in service agreements. Again, our first CPE code word for today's episode is service, as in service agreements. Now let's get back to our conversation. In 2010, the OECD published the Joint Audit Report, and it looked at 13 countries' specific experiences with joint audits. Where has the expansion of joint audits been on the OECD's agenda since 2010? I guess here's a little misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. At the time of OECD joint audit report 2010, none of the states had any experience of joint audits. Mm-hmm. So most of the countries had experience with simultaneous tax audits. Number 13 is the number of the group countries that promoted the use of joint audits. Yeah, Got it. back then. So if they promoted the use of joint audits, that doesn't mean they've necessarily had experience with it, right? Right, okay. right. So and actually, because of the difference in joint audit concept interpretation, there were issues even on counting the number of total joint audits in their second report in 2019. So for this reason, you can see in their statistics the number 25 plus. So yeah. And then the OECD has since actually released another joint audit report. Now, in this one, though, there is more practical experience. Yeah, uh, the 2019 OECD report, Joint Audit Implementation Package, which they were released together at the same time. Mm-hmm. The best practices, relevant templates, and model agreements for practical use 
are identified. So it's a great practical use for tax administration. You know, in between, and I know your paper didn't go into this, but I'm just curious as to your your personal perspective. In between, the OECD and the UN launched the Tax Inspectors Without Borders initiative, right? Which it's not really a joint audit, but I think it's to help facilitate audit processes. I mean, that was sometime in between 2010 and 2019, like 2014 or 15 in that area. Do you think that helps the argument to continue to have joint audits? Do you think that developing countries should also be participating in these joint audit processes? So developing countries actually are concerned that they do not really benefit from joint audits due to the lack of expertise and staff. So here I see the importance of this taxing sector without borders initiative mm-hmm. that could support them financially. And of course, they need more learning experience. They need more help. They need more help first before they can actively participate and benefit from the joint audit process. Right, right. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. These cooperative joint audits, I mean, how does this ultimately help take this audit process to the next level? Because we have we have countries that are already engaged in different cooperative actions like bilateral APAs, simultaneous examinations, mutual agreement procedures. Why do you think joint audits will allow for better collaboration and cooperation? First of all, I will be mentioning holistic approach of joint audits. Mm-hmm which can improve the collaboration. And this joint audit report 2019 pointed out several successful examples of application of the holistic approach. For example, there is a transfer price and case measured where six jurisdictions were audited jointly. By the end of the joint audit, the cooperating group reached an agreement and a substantial part of the profit from a low jurisdiction was reallocated. So as a result, all parties involved benefited. The taxpayer obtained certainty in all six jurisdictions. The tax administrator achieved a comprehensive understanding of the facts and were able to make necessary adjustments of the tax assessment. Of course, the application of this holistic approach depends on the audit production capacity of tax authority, which is higher in developed countries. Mm-hmm. But in the example described, the, the resources of three tax administrations work on behalf of the group of all six cooperating jurisdictions. 
And this is already an upper level of cooperation. And the other example would be during audit would allow tax authority to gain efficiency by responding to changes in taxpayers' preference. So the joint audit report 2019 is showing potential connections between MAP, ATA, and, and joint audits, of course. And in this regard, I will mention Germany's example. So a very forward-looking strategy in promoting joint audits I consider the new draft section 89A of the fiscal code that provides a fee reduction of 75% for APA application if a coordinated audit is already in place. So you see, M&Is are still considered APA a best way in achieving tax certainty. As a rule, tax audits are not initiated during the duration of the agreement. Sure. So such cost-sharing agreements allow the tax authority to become a strategic partner to the taxpayers on one side and save resources on the other side. So the new section will allow Germany to gain this efficiency by responding at the same time to these taxpayers' preferences. So I think the possibilities of joint audits are just bigger. In your article, I did notice you had highlighted the fact that Germany had the highest number of MAP cases. And out of all the different developed countries, and to date, they really hadn't adopted additional compliance assurance programs that allowed for the better facilitation of audits and double taxation relief, right? So Germany right now, are they really advocating for joint audits at this point? along with, you know, I think some other European countries, right? Right, but Germany is making more progress. Okay. It's doing more into this field. Um, so they started to taste the water in the first pilot project with Netherlands in 2012. So then they set up its first competence center for coordinated cross-border tax audits in 2013. Mm -hmm. So a year later, they, for example, International Tax Audit Forum was established in Munich and more pilot projects were initiated. So it took the Bavarian State Ministry of Finance only three years to start seeing favorable outcomes. For example, established contacts with 11 countries resulting in 180 million additional tax revenue. After that, in 2017, they published first guidance that I know so far for tax administration, how to deal with this joint audit with other tax administrations. So the success story just continued in 2018 when the second international tax center is set up in Baden-Württemberg. Mm -hmm. In 2019, also the at the initiative of German representative joint audits were identified as a priority item in the cooperation between the European Union members. And as a result, several amendments to the Commission's Fiscalis program 2021-27 were made. And Fiscalis, this is the program which financially supports joint audits implementation. So yeah, it's really great progress. I never saw such a thing 
in other countries. So Germany is really pushing this. They're really pushing this. I mean, what are some of the reasons why they're pushing for joint audits and why they're taking so many different initiatives, you think? There could be mentioned several reasons, of course, but we should not limit only to them. But as I and Professor Rand Borges from University of Groningen anticipated in our early article published in June World Tax Journal, joint audits should be expected in countries with high number of new map cases. Mm-hmm. And we already saw that Germany is an absolute leader for a long time. Yeah. The other factor that urged the implementation of the joint audits explained in the literature is the significant losses of tax revenue. Mm -hmm. So I found some statistical data saying that Germany has the largest offshore wealth among member states and is the second highest of the EU 28 estimated revenue loss to international tax evasion. And the third factor I consider would be Germany's remarkable reorganization of tax authorities strategy around compliance without any cooperative compliance in place. Mm-hmm. So even here, I see Germany's leading position into stepping further and bringing back cooperation globally on a larger scale. So all these factors are having Germany as a leader. Wow. And it's amazing that they're considered to have the second highest of the EU in terms of estimated revenue lost to international tax evasion, right? Which, which brings us to this concept back to, you know, the, the whole OECD BEPS action plan, the base erosion profit shifting action plan. I'm curious, do you think that joint audits will be more effective to help prevent BEPS? Well, you see, there are strong arguments that to believe that these new developments and exchange of information and transfer pricing, like DAC 6, DAC 7, DAC Action 13 mm-hmm. examples, will help with preventing base erosion and profit shifting. Mm-hmm. And it is well known that information reporting helps the audit to be more effective. However, at the same time, we have these studies that show that M&I avoid less tax at home and more abroad when home country enforcement increases. So if that is true, then the situation of developing countries might aggravate in the future because they either neither have the capacity to administrate complex solutions, nor Mm -hmm. are they equipped to handle costly international dispute settlement processes. So, and exactly for this situation, I see the prevailing advantages of the joint audit. They could help deter tax avoidance, not only in home country, but also abroad on one hand, and avoid tax in multiple jurisdictions on the other hand. Do you think joint audits should be limited to two countries or, or even more countries? I mean, I think it, it creates complexity when there's more than two countries, right, in terms of the audit process, but it's not always that simple. Yes, the more the better, but <laughs> in terms of joint audits, unfortunately, the multilateral joint audits are not that successful so far. So for this reason, we're hearing all these stories about 
feel at their own joint audit. Mm-hmm. So the bigger the group, the harder it is to get these common solutions or to agree on something. Yeah, it is. It is definitely harder to gain consensus the larger the group, right? And yeah. so joint audits, I mean, I think that you've highlighted through your research that perhaps they have gained at least some traction or visibility, right, in the last 10 years. But what do you think? It's probably still not enough. And you clearly have highlighted the benefits of a joint audit. What do you think needs to be done to increase the presence and usage of joint audits effectively? So, yes, my article actually provides plenty of evidence that interest in joint audits has been growing, whatever from the OECD, EU, G20, or individual countries, from tax professional, tax officer, or academia. And you can see that the more experience you gain, the more people are talking about. But in terms of their presence and usage, two factors have to be taken into account. First is that the appetite comes with eating. So to have more of them, the countries just have to start implementing them. The second, it depends on people's beliefs. So you see that the cooperation of tax authorities depends on their openness, which is shaped by traditional style of administration and political leadership. Unfortunately, with regard to territoriality principle, national decisions are bound by limits of their legal competences. So for this reason, as in case of European Union member states, we see that the regional uniformity favors and the common legal regulation can promote the cross-border tax administration cooperation, but they are not the deciding factor. Of great practical importance, on the other hand, there are other non-sovereign measures and so on and so forth, long story short. At the end, it is not about institutions, but about people. People must come to believe that the benefits of cooperation outweigh the burden. So if they come to this conclusion, then an institutional way will also be found. I love that. It comes down to the people's beliefs, right? And right, that right. benefits outweigh the compliance burden. And and I think that actually supports this idea of tax morality that we keep hearing about in the context of, you know, the BEPS action plan and all these inclusive framework discussions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tax morality. Yeah. Tax certainty. All these high concepts. But it's, it's about people at the end. If people, if we will convince the people, so... So everything will be better. Yeah. Possible. Taxation has always been at the core of people's challenges, if you will, right? So, (laughs) and ensuring that they have the right level of representation before they're subject to certain levels of taxation. It could also be clearly just governments ensuring that they provide a sufficient level of transparency to the people to further bolster their confidence in the tax systems. Right. So this is fantastic. I, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation, Diana. This, I, I really enjoyed your article. I think it's, it's 
something that needs to be highlighted. And the idea of joint audit, it can benefit both the taxpayers and tax authorities. So really, I, I think I appreciate you advocating for that and demonstrating that certain governments are, are also advocating for that, right? Well, it's my topic. <laughs> yeah, it is your topic. And you're a trailblazer in the space. So <laughs> we're lucky to have you. <laughs> And I'm extremely really excited to be here. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And before we head into our rapid fire, just a recap of that last answer. As we've seen in Europe, particularly Germany, the presence of joint audits is growing, but the implementation needs to be increased. The core of this matter is that it comes down to the people conducting the audits. If they believe in joint audits, they're more likely to conduct them, which in turn bolsters the confidence of this global compliance effort. And right before we head into our rapid fire round, let's give those last two CPE code words. For our second CPE code word, that code word is implementation. Again, the second CPE code word for this episode is implementation. Also, our third and final CPE code word for this episode is compliance. Again, our third and final CPE code word is compliance. Now back to the show. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp welcome back everyone we want to thank dr creek levia for being on today's show and it's also time for our rapid fire round of a little bit more personal questions we call this segment what we want to know we put a transfer pricing expert in the hot seat and get to know them a little bit better in their career and their opinions on the larger global economy. On that note, Dr. Creek Levea, always question one here. Are you ready? I am. Excellent. Question number two. I know you discussed this a, a little bit before in today's show, but what do you feel multinationals can learn from the pandemic outside of, of joint audits? As I mentioned already, I see the pandemic more as an accelerated of exchanges that were already taking place rather than an event that imposes new radical changes worldwide. For example, if movement of people is constrained, it can be replaced by remote virtual work, right? Those some high costs could be simply offset by some other cost savings. And this is exactly what MNIs were doing. Moreover, I'm sure that there will be more need in the global actions and cross-border collaboration in the future. Those MNIs should definitely 
keep being flexible and think holistically when sizing the opportunities and facing the new risks. And actually, this applies not only to multinational companies, but also to tax authorities. And Dr. Creek Levaya, for our next question, let's say your academic career had a movie title. What do you think it would be? Wow. Take your time on this one. This then is a this is a tough would, question. <laughs> the name would be "I Will Do It Again." <laughs> of course, of course, there are always what you could regret about, and there is always room for perfections. But the core value behind those regrets prevail over my failures. So if I would get a chance to start my career over with same ups and downs, I would do it again. If you could start your career over, that sounds like kind of a Freaky Friday movie. <laughs> and I was almost relieved you didn't say From Here to Eternity, because working in academia myself in years, that was the first title that came to my head. What academic lessons and or principles have spilled into your personal life? First of all, I could mention my research habits which are helping me to find the best answers. There is not enough just to be able to accumulate the information. It is also important to be able to analyze it from the point of view of its relevance and applicability when needed. Another example would be language learning principle. For example, in Poland, I learned Polish and US English and German and German. All languages I speak are helping me to achieve more in personal life. So to connect with more people, to attend useful events, to read more books, to integrate better into any culture. And last but not least, I could mention that as an academic, I have learned to work on several projects simultaneously, deal with stress or time pressure, and to keep a cool head, to organize and prioritize things. All these skills I find very useful in personal life as well. Amen. You were a professor for 11 years. What do you feel you learned from your students? Well, very interesting question, actually. I never thought about it before. I guess I have learned many things from my wonderful students over the years. To be flexible, always to look for the best practices, to be able to communicate cross-culturally. You see, I taught large undergraduate classes, like 250-plus students and small master classes in different countries in several languages. But most important, they taught me to understand the value of the knowledge. While teaching others, I also improve my own knowledge, which is the only way to understand its value. So what do I hope they learn from me? I hope that they understood that learning can be fun. I hope they learned that. Of course, of course. And which work accomplishment are you most proud of and why? At the moment, I would mention my publication on green tax audits. <laughs> for this, for well this reason, I'm here, right? Yes. Why? yes. First of all, because they will always be considered as a pioneer work in this field. There are not that many professionals who can say the same. And second, these achievements matter to me because I'm able to share them. I like it. I like it. If you're familiar with it, it's somewhat of a kind of a, a, a funny book, kind of like the hedgehog and the and the fox. But mm -hmm. it's called it's called advanced genius theory. It's kind of mostly a joke about trying to appreciate all the works by an artist that they made a little bit, you know, later in life that doesn't get as much 
attention as their, you know, early 20s work for which they're best known. And they make the point uh, in the book about everybody from Dostoevsky to Bob Dylan. And they say the mark of a true artist is whatever they last did or whatever their new release is. That's what they think the best thing they've ever done is. So I think that's the mark of a true artist. My father-in-law used to say that Second Liar never had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, too. I like that, too. And for our next question, what excites you about transfer pricing? Well, I just I'm attracted to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges in transfer pricing controversy. So far, there has never been a dual moment. There is always something new to learn, new variety of transactions, new cases, new rules, new guidelines, new types of audits, of course. On top of that, there are these major changes which are debated and discussed. One change is the delivery of BEPS project in 2015 that tried to bring more countries to update their rules. The other is G20 tax certainty project started in 2016. The ongoing project on taxing the digital economy pillars one and two. So it is really hard to get bored. We want to thank Dr. Creek Levia for being on today's show. We congratulate her on her article in World Tax Journal again. We also want to thank Mimi Song for a wonderful conversation. We also want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. While you're there, don't forget to check out Cross Border Solutions' entire suite of tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host and master the Fiona Show transfer pricing. This episode was edited by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. As we always say, in the home stretch, folks, wear a mask, stay safe, and we'll see each other very soon. Until next week. 